Welcome to the 224th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with the author, Matthew Pearl, author of The Last Buccaneer, The Technologist, The Post Shadow, and many other novels. And just to note, this interview was originally recorded in April 2016 when the publication of the paperback for The Last Buccaneer. Stay tuned for my interview with Matthew Pearl. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Matthew Pearl, author of the novel The Last Buccaneer, which has just been published in paperback. Pearl's earlier novels include The Dante Club, The Technologist, The Poe Shadow, and The Last Dickens. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, can you read two or three pages from your novel, The Last Buccaneer? Absolutely. Uh, this novel actually has two narrators, and the main narrator is a man named Fergins, and this is in England in the late 19th century. He's a, a bookseller and a book collector who gets involved with this strange breed of book person called the buccaneer. And he'll explain a little bit what that means in this excerpt. Great. If you should ever meet people who tell you they know something about the buccaneers, be skeptical. They probably deal in myths and fables. That most people have never heard of the buccaneers and never will stems from the buccaneers' unique position in that long, twisty, and mostly invisible chain of actors that links author to reader. It will be the buccaneers' collective fate to have appeared and disappeared with only traces left in our atmosphere, like so many meteors. The story I have to tell is about a particular buccaneer of the most extraordinary skill, the last true representative, some might say, of that name and tribe. My account is true in all particulars, because I was there. The story has no beginning, I mean no single obvious starting point, but stories ought to try to begin somewhere. London will do, then. My bookstall in Hoxton Square was near the corner of Bowling Green Lane. I grew it, cultivated it, and, excuse my sentimentality, loved it for years to the exclusion of almost everything else. My stall backed onto a fence, the iron spikes of which were clothed with moss in every variety and shade of green and brown from 200 years of growth. A church bell tolled periodically from one end of the street. A fire engine clanged from the other, and my books were situated comfortably between these sounds of spiritual succor and earthly warning. I should mention that in the course of having the bookstall, I met a few handsome women now and again who were interesting as they were affable, and my thoughts turned to starting a family whenever I would see Veronica and Emily, my beautiful little nieces, who lived in the country and kept me on my toes during my visits. But books are jealous mistresses. As soon as I was back in London, my time was consumed, to the point that the pursuit of anything more than cordial friendship was always cut short. Before long, I had lost my youth and my patience for indulging others. Books 
were everything in life. Books were better than wine. Most readers mistakenly believe books are creations of an author, fixed things handed down from high into their waiting hands. That is far from true. Think of the most interesting, the most alarming, the most brilliant choice made by a writer in literature. Now, consider that equally interesting, alarming, and brilliant maneuvers were made by people you will never, never hear about in order for that work to see the light of day. The path is never without obstructions, even more so when the publication proves influential or controversial. After years of keeping my stall, I grew more conscious of such hindrances. I noticed other shadows over the literary kingdom I had been too naive to see, and had occasion to encounter some of the denizens of these shadowlands, shameless autograph hunters, forgers, collectors who tried passing off third editions as firsts, publishers who gave false discounts and fabricated advertising costs, customs officials who sought graft on expensive editions imported from abroad. There is a verse I write in my notebook from memory about once a year. It goes, though an angel should write, still tis devils must print, and you can't think, think what havoc these demons sometimes choose to make. Thomas More meant the printer's devils, the name for those men with the thankless and tedious tasks of dwelling in a printing press. But the devil has taken many forms in our trade. And that's uh, how Fergan's sort of starts off introducing us to this other side of the, the book world. Great, great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about The Last Buccaneer yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, this novel rose out of other books that I wrote where I explored 19th century literary history. And for whatever reason, a variety of reasons, people ask me, why is the 19th century so appealing to you? And I'm I'm not sure. It's it's in some ways it's sort of an accident that the first novel I wrote, The Dante Club, was in the 19th century. And when you write and research in one area, it's probably natural that you keep finding more and more things to explore. But I I do always find it fascinating to look at origin stories and origin points for the way our world works. And one of those areas is copyright law. Now, when I say copyright law, someone might first hesitate and, and think that sounds very boring. And there are certainly boring ways to think about or talk about copyright law. But there's a really interesting dark side to the 19th century literary world, which was that copyright law only protected creators who were citizens. So if you were in the United States and you were a publisher and you wanted to publish an American book or an American book of poetry, a novel, you would have to get authorization from the author. You would have to pay the author, very similar to what you would do today. However, if you wanted to publish a British or a French or a German author, you could do it with no requirement of any kind of relationship to the author. And that was the same abroad. So in the UK, British publishers didn't need to make arrangements with American authors. 
So this had all kinds of, of effects for authors and for the publishing industry, one of which was to grow this breed of essentially literary bounty hunter that the publishers would hire because it was about who could get their hands on these unprotected works first. It wasn't about who could negotiate the best deal with an author. So I found these reports of people who would wait at the docks at the harbor in Boston to try to get a hold of manuscripts or proof sheets of British books as they were literally sailing into our country. And this just opened up my imagination um, and sort of put me on a research track to try to figure out who these these literary mercenaries would be, what their lives would be like. And that's where the buccaneers come from. Um, so this novel is about, the, as the title suggests, the last buccaneers, right before the copyright law finally turns into something more what we're used to, which is at the very end of the 19th century. And sort of the last two uh, great buccaneers who go on a quest to uh, chase Robert Louis Stevenson's final manuscript as he's on his deathbed, essentially, in the Samoan Islands, where he retires toward the end of his life. And Fergins, the bookseller whose voice you heard me reading, is our sort of Dr. Watson. He's, he's following uh, and assisting uh, the buccaneer. Great. Well, what led you to writing your first novel, The Dante Club? Had you always wanted to write fiction before then? Interestingly, I really had never thought of writing fiction before then. I, I had other creative outlets um, from the time I was very young, uh, more more sort of visual arts and, and um, drawing and even animation. But I, I had never, ever thought... I would write a novel. Um, part of that might have been that I eventually was was very serious about studying literature, and, and that was my major in college. And so I think because I was so invested in it as a student, uh, this wouldn't apply to everyone, but at least for me, it, it would seem impossible to think of myself writing that kind of material. So it was only when I was sort of removed from studying literature, and I was actually studying law. Uh, I was in law school. And at that point, I, my sort of need for a creative outlet, outlet sort of took new directions, and I decided just to, to try it out. And I had most recently worked on the material of the Dante Club, the sort of raw historical material, as part of my senior thesis in college. And so I think that was what was freshest in my mind. So I sat down and sort of approached it from a historical fiction standpoint. I did a, a test chapter, a test scene, and I looked at it and thought, hey, I think I could do this. And by the way, I don't have that test chapter anymore, and it was probably awful from what I remember <laughs> of it. It was nothing nothing to do with what ended up in the novel, but it, it, and yet it was very important to me because it at least gave me that the confidence at that moment to, to try it out. Gotcha. So given the research that you do for your novels, has your research already given you ideas for future novels? That's the, the wonderful and also sometimes overwhelming aspect I find of historical fiction writing and historical research in general, even if it was, uh, even if it was nonfiction writing, which I do some of as well. 
that you're constantly running into great ideas that aren't really going to fit in what you're currently writing, or maybe they'll maybe a mention of of some of it would fit. And so I, I always have too many ideas that are springing from whatever I'm working on. And most of my books, the last book in the year is my uh, fifth novel. Most of them have grown out of one of the previous previous books. So yeah, I have a list of ideas that will that will take me a lifetime. <laughs> so so what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? Yeah, I think one of the hardest things for me developing my approach to writing in part probably because I I had not spent much time thinking about what it meant to be a writer and and how to sustain the creative process of being a writer since as I say it it felt in some ways that I slipped into it accidentally, was to accept how much writing really is a process. Um, I, I think for many new writers um, or writers who have, have people who have tried to write but get frustrated, there's this this disconnect between what's in our imagination, what's in our mind, and what what we get on the page, and that feels uh, it feels overwhelming and sort of stops us from continuing on. And I don't know, I, I always think of this scene from the movie Romancing the Stone with uh, uh, with Michael Douglas and um, Kathleen Turner. And the very first scene is sort of a, a something that she's writing, but you see it in real time, this sort of heroic romance. And then it cuts to Kathleen Turner at a typewriter as she's writing the story, as she's typing the story and she's crying and she takes the page off the typewriter and types the end and, and her work is done. <laughs> and, and I think that's some, whether someone has seen that movie or not. And by the way, when I bring that up in the past, at if I'm speaking at a high school or a college, they don't know. Romance they've never heard the, the movie. They've, they, they've never heard of Kathleen Turner. They've, well, anyway, that's a different story about about <laughs> growing older. Um, but I think I, I really somehow, maybe because of that movie or not, I, I sort of thought writing would happen the way music happens, the way other kind of performative arts happen. That the way it feels to write will will somehow be attached to what what the feeling is in what you're writing, and it's not to say you can't have moments or stretches in which you're sort of in that kind of real time writing moment, but the reality of writing is much more like a renovation or a construction of a house or a building. And I'm probably biased saying that because my father is a contractor and we grew up with renovations around our, our heads all the time. But if you've ever been through a renovation, you know, or a construction project, you know that it's only at the very end that, oh yeah, this room is starting to look like a kitchen. Or, oh, we could start painting the wall. And too many of us, when we write, are trying to paint the wall as the first step. Right. Uh, you know, we have to accept that it's going to be a, a loud, ugly, dusty project uh, if we're ever going to get to the point where it starts to, to match what was in our mind. Sure. So when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to jumpstart the process for yourself? You know, I think there are some ways in which doing research-based writing makes your life harder. 
Um, but one of the ways that it, it's actually very nice, I think, as a writer, is that I I never have to come up with any kind of acrobatics to get myself into my work because even if what I'm actually writing at the moment does not feel like it's clicking or I'm not ready to write or revise whatever I'm working on, there's so much research to do and so much research to organize that that's how I usually start my writing day is um, I'll start by reading a couple pages of whatever research book or document that I'm looking at taking notes on that, and then it sort of charges me up for the actual writing. Sure, sure. So are there books and authors that inspire your own writing? Uh, you know, I was a, initially, I think one of the reasons that I sort of fell into this slot of, uh, or category of writing, um, there were a couple books that I had happened to have read, um, including The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco and The Alienist by Caleb Carr. So not necessarily about authors, but sort of using history in a certain way that felt very uh, provocative, very very adventure, adventurous and thrilling. Um, and I think that's sort of what got me into the place I am. These days, um, most of my my reading, for better or worse, uh, sort of has to be my research because um, I only have so much time, especially now that I have children, sort of a different phase of life than when I started writing. Sure. So I, it's, I, I don't read that much in the same category as I write. I really read more in the sort of raw material uh, area of where I draw from. Gotcha. So are you working on another novel now? Yeah, I'm always, I'm always uh, jumping right from one book to the next. Um, I've also been working on sort of long nonfiction articles simultaneously with books. So uh, right now, um, I just finished a, a long nonfiction article on the first Boston detectives that will be in the Boston Globe magazine on May 1st. And the book I'm working on currently will be a sequel to the Dante Club. So this will be my first official sequel. The last book in the year actually has its roots in my third novel, uh, The Last Dickens. Um, but it's not technically a sequel. This will be sort of a continuation of that first novel and, and sort of, in some ways, bringing a lot of the elements from my other books, including the last book in the year, uh, together into, into a new story. Great. And is there a publication date set for that yet? I'm not quite far, far enough along where oh, they've gotcha. set yeah. any dates, but, um, but I'm, I'm plugging away. Good, good. Well, again, we've been speaking with Matthew Pearl, author of the novel The Last Buccaneer, which has just been published in paperback. The book is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Matthew, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much, Jeff. Great. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.